And look, education is an interesting thing, but it's a lifelong process. And at least in my experience, in my maturity, I'm still learning. I still learn something every day. Joe Jenkins is my guest on the podcast today. He's a lawyer, a doctor, and a successful entrepreneur. I have the privilege of working alongside of him at eHop Health, and I get to learn more about his story, what makes him so unique. And it's just a fascinating tale of the power of listening and making genuine connections with others and where that can take you in life. Enjoy this conversation with Dr. Joe. Welcome to the Become a Provider podcast, a show about how people bless and protect others and how you can do the same. I'm your host, Justin Thomas. Let's begin. Well, Dr. Joe, you are the first actual provider to be on the Become a Provider podcast as a profession. Well, that's interesting. That's interesting. I guess provider has several different meanings, right? You could be referring to your family, providing for your family, providing for yourself. Uh, I guess providing for other people uh, is a very appropriate place for us to talk about, uh, particularly since I'm the most mature person I think that you've spoken with yet, which means there's a lot I could talk about, Justin. We better not go. We, we don't have enough tape or whatever we got here to, to do that. But yes, I did practice urology for 11 years, per se, uh, in which I was in a place called Washington, North Carolina. Or since you're from Virginia, you might not be familiar with this. It's called Little Washington. It's down on the Pamlico River. Our front yard was the Pamlico River. And so we had a dock and a little beach. And it was an idyllic place for our children to grow up. And that's where I practiced urology. And that was, uh, you know, I know you're, you're inter- interested in how, how do we get where we are, right? I mean, what influences us to be who we are today? So there's an interesting story about that. I, I was, I, well, there's lots of interesting stories. I, I went to the University of Virginia in your home state. But I flunked out. So I flunked out of Virginia with great effort, I might add, and had to go somewhere. So I'm from North Carolina. I came to the University of North Carolina, and I graduated. And then I went to med school here in Chapel Hill. And then I just stayed and did a residency, although the influencers in your life have a different way of showing up. When I finished medical school, the chairman of the Department of Urology here had some reason or another selecting me as somebody he wanted to go into urology. And so he recruited me to go into urology in Chapel Hill. So, and I was very close to him and I said, well, sure, I'll be glad to do that. But we're going to go off for two years to do general surgery study because you did two years of general surgery before you did three years of urology. So we went and Shipley and I got in the car and we drove to Burlington, Vermont. It was gorgeous. Just, it was in the fall just gorgeous. Then we went over to Rochester, New York, which was in that, you know, and then drove through the Adirondacks. I mean, gorgeous. Then we went to Boston. Oh, Boston was wonderful. And then we went to Philadelphia and looked at the University of Pennsylvania. I had a wife who was ready to go to a, a different, bigger place. So one day, the chairman of the Department of Surgery called me, and I, he was also a mentor to me. And I was very, very fond of him. And he said, I want you to stay here those first two years. 
and his name was Dr. Colin Thomas. And I said, Dr. Thomas, well, we're all set to leave and go away. We're coming back. He said, no, 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 you need to stay because, and I don't know what definition they did. They said that you guys who are stronger need to stay here because you will make our general surgery program stronger before you go into urology. And if you guys leave our general surgery program, those first two years will be weaker. So I said, sure. So I went home and told Shipley it didn't go very well. <laughs> oh, boy, the tears flowed. How could I do this? We all, oh, she was so, so disappointed. Fast forward five years after the, doing the, all the residency, I started looking at places we were going to go. And she said, why do we have to leave Chapel Hill? <laughs> so when we were left to get, go to Little Washington, she cried that time too. So she, so she was, so it was an adventure, but why Little Washington? I mean, goodness gracious, here I'm at an academic center and I go to a little town in Eastern North Carolina. Ironically, there was a man there, and a urologist there, who had been head of the U.S. Naval Urology Program, had been at Bethesda, had operated on President Lyndon Johnson twice, had operated on Supreme Court justices, operated on senators, and he was invited to be Surgeon General of the Navy and turned it down and decided to retire and he ended up in Washington, North Carolina. Well, he used to refer patients to us. He was a great urologist. And so the word got back to me that he would like a partner. And so I said, well, you, would you be interested in talking to me? And he said, come on down. So anyway, he and I, he was much older than I, but we had a ball. We were kind of had the same mentality. He was this formal Bostonian who was a four letterman's at Tufts University married the homecoming queen from Dartmouth. I mean, here was this Bostonian and then this hit from Raleigh, North Carolina. And we had a wonderful time. So we had so much fun that when he retired, I started getting restless. So that's when I kind of started thinking, well, you know, maybe I can do something in the crazy world of law and medicine that led me to go to law school. And then in the midst of all that, this incredible technology came along called a lithotripter. And, and one moment before you get into this next crazy story, I want to pause <laughs> and say, all right, so here you are. You've, you've just gone through a lot here. And just to say, a lot of people, yep. when they go, go back to flunking out of university, your backup plan typically is not becoming a doctor. So what gave you the confidence to say, hey, UVA didn't work out, but UNC will? Well, it, remember, it was a different era. And I'd gone to University of Virginia. I had a very, I have an uncle that was a very prominent attorney in Washington, D.C., who I always admired. So I always thought I was going to be an international lawyer. So I went to Virginia, and I was, after I quit the basketball team, that after I figured Did you actually play? Well, it depends on the word actual. I, mean, <laughs> word actual. I, I, I tried out. I made the team. So this is a freshman team. And so one day I have chemistry lab. So I got to practice late. And the coach, that the freshman coach said, I got to practice. He said, Jenkins. He said, where you been? I said, coach, I had a, uh, had a chemistry lab. He said, Jenkins, you're going to be a basketball player or a chemist? 
I decided, having gone through the process and realized what it was like being the non-glory of being a walk-on basketball, at least at that level, was not all that great. <laughs> and I decided I was never going to do what you just asked, which was actually play. <laughs> and so I said, you know, Coach, I think I'm going to be a chemist. <laughs> so, so I quit. <laughs> and concentrated on the grades for the first year. And then I fell on hard times. So, but at that point, and I was into all these campus activities and all this stuff. And at that point, I knew I was flunking out. And the, my final semester at Virginia, I, I made a 0.4 out of a 4.0. But the 0.4 was really impressive, Justin. I actually took the president of the University of Virginia's course on Tennyson and Browning, the poet. And because I was an English major, I had a minor in Latin, a minor in, I was taking Spanish and I had, I was also like in the third year of French. I mean, I was international lawyer. To, I was on the way. <laughs> so his course, which I never went to, and I saw him, I was walking down the lawn. If you know anything about the University of Virginia, these, the rotunda and then the, all the classes were down in a place called Cabell Hall. And you walked, to, I was living at a fraternity house, so you walked to the, down to your exam. And I'm walking to his exam and he, come, he lived on the lawn. So he came out of his abode house, place on the lawn. He's walking to our exam. And I knew him from some university activities. He said, Mr. Jenkins, where are you going? And I said, oh, Mr. Shannon, I'm going to take your exam. And he looked at me and he said, are you in my class? <laughs> kind of old. And I said, well, yes, sir. And he said, well, how are you going to do on my exam? I said, Mr. Shannon, I'm going to ace it. <laughs> well, he got tickled. I got tickled. We walked on down. I took the exam. So I knew I was flunking out. And so I went to the dean of admissions at Virginia, who I knew through some of this campus stuff. And I said, look, I need to go somewhere next semester, not here. And so he said, come back tomorrow. I'll, I'll call the University of North Carolina. And that's what he did. I went back the next day. He said, you're in Carolina for the fall. I said, thank you. So I'm back. I leave. I pack up and leave Virginia because I didn't know I ain't going back. I got to about mid-July. The phone rings at my house in Raleigh. And my mother says, son, there's a Mr. Shannon on the phone. Well, this is Edgar Shannon, who's president of the University of Virginia. And I said, goodness gracious. I said, hey, Mr. Shannon. He said, oh, Mr. Jenkins, I just want to tell you, I want to thank you. I said, for what, sir? He said, you're a man of your word. He said, you wrote the best exam in the class, but I had to give you a C because you didn't turn in a single paper or ever attend class. That was the only C I got that semester. I got one C and four Fs. <laughs> that was my point four. <laughs> so, so and it resulted. How many people planned to get a personal call from the president of the university? Uh, yes, congratulating I you. No, I mean, it was unbelievable. <laughs> it was one of the nicest things anybody ever did. The, the idea that he would take the time to think about this. You're president of the University of Virginia, and you take the time to call a student who is flunked out and never came to class and never turned in a paper. I mean, it, it was truly one of the most gracious things I have ever received is that call to say, I just want you to know you're a man of your word. And so I had actually taken a bunch of psychological, to go to your question you asked a long time ago, I'd actually taken a psychological test when I knew that I wasn't going to be an international lawyer because I was lucked out. 
I said, I wonder what I should do. I mean, how do I figure this out? I've never, I've always thought I was going to be a lawyer. So I took these tests and it came back kind of interestingly. It said I should be one of two things. I should either be a musician or I should be a doctor. Now, I thought, well, musicians can't pay for anything. I said, I'm going to be a doctor. (laughs) so, So it was that direction that led me to Chapel Hill. And, and then I had to take all the pre-med courses and I, and I had to talk my way into med school, which was hard because I had that point four on my record. Probably the only reason I got in med school was that I had an interview with a biochemist who he didn't appreciate my sense of humor. And I didn't particularly think he was interested. And so at the committee meeting, he spoke up and said, I don't like this guy about me. And it turns out they were trying a, a, just as a trial, having a student on the admissions committee of the med school. Well, the student happened to be a really good friend of mine. And I, I had told him after the interview, I didn't like that guy. So when he said, I didn't much like Joe Jenkins, my friend said, well, guess what? He didn't like you either. <laughs> and so they gave me a, a second interview and I, it was a guy who I just loved, who turned out to be a mentor and, and just a great guy. And he, he just thought it was funny that I, I went from a point four at Virginia to a 4.0 at Carolina. So there was a slight discrepancy in that. And that was taking all the pre-med course. So anyway, that got us to med school and then the residency and then the little Washington. And they're, they're, they're influencers all along there. Of course, you know, my parents were the ones supporting me. You know, the, what they did was remarkable you particularly in a way so my mother got cancer she got breast cancer when I was a third year medical student or just beginning the third year and I'd gotten a an appointment to a clerkship at Oxford England and uh, the medical school and facility there is called the Radcliffe Infirmary so I was going to go spend three months in Oxford you know, her diagnosis was made and she started treatments. And so I decided I shouldn't go to Oxford, that I should stay and be with her. And, and she absolutely refused for me to stay, that she said, you need to go. You will never get a chance to do this again. And so I came back in October and she died in February. So that was really a huge sacrifice on her part. But that's the way she thought. And I guess that's the way she loved. She said, go. I guess the positive of all that is that she died at UNC Chapel Hill on the surgical wards. I was, that's where I was. So I actually had a great time visiting my mother as she was dying because I saw her twice today and I could go and sit down when I was on call and we could visit. And so I had a rare opportunity, Justin, to tell somebody you love goodbye. My brother and sister didn't really have that opportunity because they weren't there like I was. And you think about how we tell people goodbye. It's hard. I mean, a lot of times we don't get a chance. We usually have some great moment with them, but we don't always have that chance to say, you know, goodbye. So I was really fortunate in that regard that I could tell her goodbye. What a gift. Yeah. My father, you know, he made sacrifices so I could go to med school this is after I'd plunked out of Virginia. I had to go home and tell them I'd plunked out of Virginia. And of course, I was the youngest child. I was this 
you know, all these things. <laughs> I just flunked out of college. So I wasn't too popular there for a while. But it was short-lived, and they loved me, and that was great. So it all worked out. And it sounds uh, like you got the, the gift of gab to be able to work your way through a situation, including going back home <laughs> after <laughs> flicking out and having your parents know that, oh, I'll be okay. We'll talk this way through the next one. <laughs> I flunked out of Virginia, Mom and Dad, but the good news, I'm going to med school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's just the theme already is – people sticking up for you because of your, your, who you are. I mean, I think back to the admissions director at the University of Virginia that you mentioned made a call to UNC. I mean, that's one person sticking up for you right there amongst many. Yeah. I mean, I could enumerate. I mean, there are just so many wonderful examples of the goodness of people. Your life is full of examples of people helping you, whether maybe whether you recognize it or not. You know, they're providing for you. But you may not recognize it, but sometimes you do. Of course, we, our parents provide for us, and you have all these mentors and all these people that mean a lot to you in your life. But, you know, there's so many things that happen in your life that are just inexplicable if you're looking in a rational world, right? I remember one time when I was in law school. I went to law school. I would leave at 4 o'clock on Monday morning drive to Chapel Hill from Washington. It was a two and a half hour drive. And then we had an apartment in Chapel Hill. And then I went to class. And then as soon as class was over, either on Thursday night or Friday morning, I drove back to Washington and then saw patients in the office Friday afternoon and then took call, the emergency call for the practice every other or every third weekend. So I had this very scripted format of what I do. And after exams the first year, there's a snowstorm coming. So it's December, and I'm headed out to eastern North Carolina. And most of the snowstorms are worse in the west, kind of Piedmont. You know, this was one of those rare storms that came up from the south. And so in Chapel Hill, it, there, were, there were barely any flurries. But as I further east I drove, the heavier the snow got. By the time I got to Greenville, North Carolina, there were 10 or 12 inches of snow on the ground. There's just one track you can go down the road. So I'm on this four-lane road. There's one track. There's a truck in front of me. And he, he's going five miles an hour. And I said, well, I can't do this. This is just, he's throwing that slush up, you know, from his, from the back of his truck. It's just, I can't see out of the windshield across the throwing. So I decide to pass him. Not such a good idea. So, Foreshadowing. Uh, I did indeed pass him, but I spun off the side of the road down an embankment. So there I was. It was now 11 o'clock on a Friday night in a snowstorm, and I was 10 miles from Greenville, North Carolina, and 10 miles from Washington, North Carolina, in a ditch down in the bike. So, and the truck kept going. So I climb up to the top of the bike and I kind of scratch my head saying, this is not, this is not good. So I look down the road and there are two headlights and it's coming at five miles an hour because it's now it's 15 inches. I mean, it ended up snowing 24 inches. Wow. So he's coming down, he's coming down, he's coming in. Finally, finally, they kind of, you hear the crusty sound coming up. The wind that comes down, I mean, it's now it's, you know, it's 11 o'clock on Friday night in the snowstorm. And the wind that comes down and he says, Dr. Jenkins, is that you? <laughs> it's one of my patients. 
No way. Yeah, Bellhaven, North Carolina, which is 20 miles east of Washington. I mean, he was absolutely nuts. I said, what are you doing? He said, oh, the wife and I decided to have dinner in Greenville tonight. I said, good gracious almighty. He takes me to my house. He puts me in the car. He takes me to my house. And you're saying, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. This is an angel. It is be sent out of frozen to death. So to continue the episode, so the next day, my next door neighbor who's a radiologist has a truck, says, let's go get your car out. It had gotten passable so we could drive, hook my car up and pull it out of the ditch. And so we get to the site of the accident or the spinoff or whatever you call it. And we get get my car hooked up. And just as I get my car hooked up, here come the state police. And the state police give you a ticket for that sort of thing. And I'm thinking, oh, gosh, we almost got it out. And here comes the state police. The state patrolman pulls up, and he gets out of the car, and he says, Dr. Taylor and Dr. Jenkins, what are y'all doing out here? And we looked at him, and we had been to a church retreat at the beach, at Atlantic Beach, North Carolina, with the Episcopal Church half. And he, he remembered us from the church retreat. So he helped us pull my car out and get everything straightened out. But life, life is full of that stuff. I mean, you feel very blessed, very lucky. And those people that influence have provided for me have been innumerable, to say the least. Oh, that's amazing. Well, it's obvious that you've got the ability to make an impression. Well, I, you don't know what it is. You know, maybe, I really don't know. I, maybe it's because you reach out to other people. Maybe it's because you understand the frailty of the human. And so you, you're, you're empathetic maybe to the trials and tribulations. Certainly as a, as a surgeon, I saw all walks of life. I saw, you know, the rich, the poor, the homeless, the, the men that they brought in who they found in the woods where a tree had fallen on them. So you understood how lucky we are, but also how, how fragile life can be. I think about uh, the time, the, the true humility that you learn, and it had to do with when somebody dies. And I remember the, the patient. It, it was a little, little old lady. I call her a little old lady. She was cute as she could be, and she had cancer in both of her kidneys. And she was failing. She was bleeding. Uh, and the one thing I really I could do for her, uh, because she had such significant volume of cancer, so I said, you need to call your family in. I told the family we need to get them. And there were a bunch of cousins and nephews and nieces from New York City and other places, and they all came in to tell Grandma goodbye. And, you know, it was a very moving, touching scene for a while, but Grandma lived six, six months, and I realized that I was not in charge <laughs> anymore. And, you know, the, some of the relations kind of came because she had some money, and they were looking forward to inheriting some money. Well, it was obvious that I had made a mistake because she was still alive and they were ready to go back home. <laughs> and so uh, I learned the hard way that it's not a good idea to declare yourself the arbiter of death. Is that you need to, to recognize that you're not in charge. And so, and, and there were the other times now, there, there was one great guy that I had operated on and he did not, turn a hair during his operation or afterwards. And I went in 
I remember him so well because he had a great sense of humor and he he got it did great went in to discharge him wrote said discharge in a.m. gave him medicine all that he died that night of pulmonary mm-hmm. embolus you know he'd been up he'd been walking he he'd done everything exactly right and he was gone and again that's a lesson that we've all learned one way or the other probably but it was very poignant for me that I wasn't in control. Mm. That's a, that is a humbling lesson, especially as a physician and a surgeon, I would imagine that is part of the professional growth that you just have to go through, or at least the wise ones go through. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You have to learn that. And, and if you're going to be a, a, I don't know what, how you define a good provider in the sense of a physician who's taking care of people. I think it's somebody today. It's so technical. Today, it's about this test or that test or, 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 you know, let me get the MRI or the perfusion study or whatever, or these laboratory studies. It's a lot about listening to the patient and understanding that they're trying to tell you a story. And if you're going to provide for them, you have to listen to their story because that story is the key. They are giving you the keys to what is wrong. Today, we don't listen very well as providers. We've gotten so technical that listening is, we're too busy to listen. So that as a provider is, is a very, very important thing. It's probably a, as important in dealing with your wife and your children. Uh, it's probably a lesson for all types of providers is how well do you listen? I'm not a very good listener, believe it, with my family. I probably listen better to strangers. Uh, and I don't know what, what the flaw is about that. But it's there's no doubt that that with the you know patients and with with people that I meet, you know I I try to listen to them because they they're telling you a story. So maybe that's a good lesson for all of us. Yeah, I think that's your secret sauce. You know, I mentioned earlier what makes you so memorable, and that might be it to be able to have that trait of authentically listening and how you put it to actually learn their story, whether you're providing for them as a physician or just as a stranger. And then you're right. I can see how it's hard to do with family. Yes, it is. And of course, that's one of the things about family, right? That dynamic that you have sometimes gets in the way of listening, you know, and and we don't listen as well. So being a provider means you have to shut up and listen. Uh, As you can tell from the podcast, my problem is shutting up. I mean, (laughs) you know, given the opportunity of silence, or talking, I'm a big talking. Well, it's so good. I mean, you've got so many stories. I didn't even know a lot about uh, these stories and really touching and moving about how all these people led you to where you eventually went. And that was as you were going to tell us, and I interrupted you because, and I'm so glad that you went back and shared more of the story of UVA and UNC and going through the process of appreciating your parents and how they handled that transition that maybe others wouldn't be so welcoming. And then having the unique opportunity of being on the floor when your mother's dying of cancer is just an incredible part of your story as well. And you eventually give Shipley what she wants. She, you move, you move her, your wife, not to the great Boston area, but to a Bostonian. And you learn from this master and, and little Washington it was just crazy. And you're about to go back to that story of how you're, you're getting bored because he's now retired and the excitement's not quite there. And you alluded to the fact that you went back to, to law school and had an opportunity to bring in some unique technology. And I just think that's amazing how you, you provide for a number of people by introducing this technology. So just give us the highlights of that. 
Well, that was interesting because when I was in law school, before I went to law school, that a new procedure, this is how science happens sometimes. I'm in my office in Little Washington. This young man walks in to my office. He's, you know, younger than you. And he says, you need to take the, and he's, uh, he says, he's got this tube sticking inside. He said, you're supposed to take this out. And I was going, whoa, 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 what do you mean I'm supposed to take this out? I didn't put that in there. He said, I know you didn't put it in there. I've been to the University of Minnesota, and I've had this big stone removed from my kidney through this little cut in my side. And I said, wow, what is this? So I go look at it, and I call the people at the University of Minnesota and say, this, your patient's down here, and I usually don't just take things out of people that I hadn't operated on myself because I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. And so they talked me through it. So I pulled this tube out. He does fine. And his stone's gone. So I said, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. So I went to the University of Minnesota to study how you do what this was called a percutaneous nephrolithotomy, fancy word for saying that it's taking a kidney stone out through a little incision. So, a, you know, a one inch, two inch incision rather than a big 10 or 12 inch incision that we were having to make cut through muscle, go down, take a stone out, sew it all back together. So instead, you could then insert instruments and pull the stone out, put this tube in, and leave it for a couple days to take it out, and that was it. And I thought, God, I have, this is the best thing I've ever heard. So then I started doing it, and turns out I was the second person in the state of North Carolina to do it. Uh, the guy, uh, One of the professors at Duke had done it, one week before I had, and then I did. So I, I had a great time. I was doing all these cases. I had people coming to learn how to do it the way I did it. So that was pretty cool. One day, my partner, who, who was the Bostonian, had gone to a national meeting, came back, and then, mind you, a third of what I did as a urologist was take stones out. I mean, that's what I did. So he says, oh, there's a new machine coming that you won't even need to do that little cut on the side. And it's called a shockwave lithotriptors from Germany, and it's going to be in the country next year. And I said, holy smokes. I said, so I started looking at that, and I said, well, that's going to totally change the practice of urology. It's going to eliminate surgery. So we started talking about, okay, how do we get one of these machines? So we went to our hospital and said, we'd like one of these machines. And they looked into it and said, well, it costs $2 million, or you ain't getting one because we don't have the volume. So we then went to the university nearby and said, hey, we need this machine. They said, oh, $2 million, I ain't doing it. So then we said, how are we going to get this machine? So another guy and I, he was from the Fayetteville area, and I was from Little Washington. We said, let's get all the urologists together in eastern North Carolina and see if we can put enough money together to buy a $2 million machine. And so that's what we did. And we got everybody together and we said, look, guys, let's, we're going to have to guarantee $2 million. And a lot of them said, oh, no, I ain't going to do that. And I said, why? And they said, well, because we own cows in Iowa. And we'd rather have cows in Iowa than a lithotriptor. And I'd say, how much you know about cows? You can identify with this, Justin. I, said, <laughs> I can't. <laughs> I said, how much you know about cows? Well, we don't know anything about cows. I said, have you ever seen that herd? No. So... <laughs> So I was able to talk some of them into coming on board and signing on. And so we got about 40 guys, and we went to Wachovia predecessor, Wells Fargo, and said, we want to borrow $2 million. 
they said, this is a great idea, guys. We, it's such a good idea. We're going to ask you to guarantee $4 million. Wow. So each of us had to double guarantee whatever our proportion was because they viewed it as such a risky loan. And, of course, the other side of this story is we put it in Fayetteville because that was kind of centrally located. We had guys all the way to Florence, South Carolina, and all the way to uh, Elizabeth City, North Carolina. So we had a really a broad range. So we put it in Fayetteville, and, of course, it was just a godsend for patients. I think I did the second patient, and we'd operate on this woman five times for stones. And so WRL was down there, and... We did her on the lithotripter, and so WRL interviewed her after she got through with the treatment, literally after, just after, and she started crying, you know, and she said, this has changed my life. I mean, I just had a stone treated without an incision. So it was wildly successful. More, and we, did, we treated all Medicare and Medicaid patients free because insurance didn't cover it. So that grew into, then that that took on a life of its own. And we had other doctors from across the country that said, we can't get our hospital to buy one for us. Can you help us get one? And so we actually created uh, an entity that went across the country and helped communities get this lithotrip. And so by the time it was over, we had 35 or 40 of these machines and, and we mobilized them so they could go one hospital to the next. So it didn't just sit there being unused some. And it became a very efficient model, so efficient that the president of Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina told us once said, you guys have saved us so much money, it's unbelievable. Because he said, if you hadn't have done what you did, every hospital would have bought this $2 million piece of equipment and we, i.e. Blue Cross Blue Shield, would have had to pay for it, pay the capital cost pass through. So he said, you know, I applaud what you've done. And of course we did. It, it was, it was very different. And in some ways being a provider was more satisfying because you were touching people directly and, and you could help them get over a disease process, whether it was cancer, the kidney, the prostate or a kidney stone. On the other hand, lithotripsy venture and the company touched people kind of in mass, you know, you were spreading a te- an innovative technology across the country and it, it and that was exciting. I mean, that was really different. You didn't get that personal satisfaction from a patient, but you got satisfaction from saying, hey, we're providing this for all these people. You know, it was 50,000 people a year you were providing the service for. So uh, it was a, you know, it was very rewarding in that regard, but very different. And it was the corporate world. And, and that really got bogged down after a while. That, I burned out of the, the corporate world there. But it was, you were still providing. It was just very different how you were providing. We might have to go to a, a part two with Dr. Joe uh, with, with the rest of all the, the tales that you have of providing <laughs> from, like I said, the beginning, our first real professional provider. And then it's so fun to see how that bleeds into other areas as well and how your genuine curiosity led you to figure this out. I mean, from that patient, some, some physicians I would imagine would have seen that patient from Minnesota and said, look, this is what I do. And you would have missed that opportunity. Yeah. I don't know. Why do you ask those questions? It's a curiosity. It's the realization you're not in charge, really, you know, that, that you can learn. And look, education is an interesting thing, but it's a lifelong process. And at least in my experience, 
in my maturity, I'm still learning. I still learn something every day. So whether it's from you or some of our colleagues, it, it is something every day. So it's a lifelong process. So you have to be curious because somebody can teach you something if you just listen. But it goes back to listening, doesn't it? It goes, goes back to listening to what that guy said to me. And I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. He could do that. That he actually had that done. So you had to find out if he was telling the truth, and he was. So, <laughs> so I've got to tell you one other story that involves certain people that you know. Yes. So I was told that I needed to meet somebody who could be part of a team. And so I said, okay. So I, I went to meet this person and I was a little bit early and there were going to be three people at the meeting and one of the people were late. But this person I was supposed to meet came in and our biases and our preconceived notions can really keep us from providing, but from even communicating. And this person walked in and I said, oh no, this is never going to work. And the person I sat down and talked for 30 minutes and after which I said, this is the greatest guy in the world and I can't wait to work with him. And his name was Justin Thomas and he walked into Jersey Mike's with that beard and I said, oh my God, what have we done? (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, true story and the rest of it is to be written in the sky. But anyway... I was glad my bosses were proved and actually wrong. <laughs> that was great. That was a great moment. I remember that as well. And I remember the first time meeting you, that was it. And I yeah. went to that meeting and it was to explore working for you and with you, with the company that we're with now. And you just, I remember the moment we just looked at me and said, what do you want to do, Justin? <laughs> and I felt like you actually were curious. You were actually curious. Yeah. yeah. That's right. I remember it well, Justin. And I applaud you for all that you've done in your CL Thomas fellowships and, and all of the positive spirit that you spread around. The world needs more Justins. So I encourage you to get out there, even though, and, and don't let those cows get you. You just be careful with those cows. But let me know if you have a better investment. It sounds like you know what's better return on investment than cows. So let Amy and I know. <laughs> Remember, just listen to Amy. That's what yeah. I do. I listen to Shively. And you listen to Amy and probably won't get into trouble. Thank you for listening to this episode. Before you take off, I wanted to ask if you would enjoy getting a short email from me every Wednesday called A Kind Word. It provides a little positivity to help you get over hump day. It's free and shares highlights of things that have brought me joy over the past week. If you want to start getting a kind word from me, Simply sign up at justinthomascoaching.com by entering your email address and you'll get the next one. That's justinthomascoaching.com. Thanks again for listening. Bless and protect. Mm -hmm.